Ephesians chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity to continue to worship you. But now we turn our attention to worshiping you in your word. We pray that we would understand what your word says here very well and to hear the warnings but to always look to the hope that is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Minister your grace among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On May 17th, 1961, the late President John F. Kennedy concluded his address to the Canadian Parliament with these few minutes of comments. So we in the free world are not without hope. We are not without friends, and we are not without resources to defend ourselves and those who are associated with us, believing in the peaceful settlement of disputes in the defense of human rights. We are working throughout the United Nations and through regional and other associations to lessen the risks, the tensions, and the means and opportunity for aggression that have been mounting so rapidly throughout the world. In these councils of peace in the UN Emergency Force in the Middle East, in the Congo, in the International Control Commission in Southeast Asia, in the Ten Nations Commissions on Disarmament, Canada, uh, excuse me, Canada has played a leading, important, and constructive role. If we can count the powerful struggle of ideologies, contain the powerful struggle of ideologies, and reduce it to manageable proportions, we can proceed with the transcendent task of disciplining the nuclear weapons which shadow our lives, and of finding a widening range of common enterprises between ourselves and those who live under communist rule. For, in the end, we live on one planet, and we are part of one human family, and whatever the struggles that confront us, we must not lose We must not lose the chance to move forward toward a world of law and a world of disarmament. At the conference table and in the midst, in the minds of men, the free world's cause is strengthened because it is just, but it is strengthened even more by the dedicated dedicated efforts of free men and free nations. As the great parliamentarian Edmund Burke said, The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And that, in essence, is why I'm here today. This trip is more than a consultation, more than a goodwill visit. It is an act of faith, faith in our country, in your leaders, faith in the capacity of two great neighbors to meet their common problems, and faith in the cause of freedom in which we are so intimately associated. From the beginning of the biblical record, we see tension amongst God's creation. From Satan's rebellion against God, to Satan's deception of Eve, to Adam's willing rebellion against the Word of God, and Cain's anger that resulted in the murder of of his brother, Abel, we see a world at conflict. 
This is not how God designed His creation. He designed men as the crown jewel of His creation to exercise dominion over everything that He had made. But in the fall of mankind, disorder began to reign. There would be contention between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent from that day and until God brings that to its consummation. There would be challenge between Adam and Eve. Her desire, Genesis tells us, would be to rule over him. And there would be challenge from the created order itself. Thorns and thistles would contend with Adam and every farmer and agricultural expert from then on. Whoever would try to properly till the ground, they would be fighting a battle against the ground itself. Every purpose of God is fought vehemently by Satan. Every purpose of God is fought vehemently by Satan. So, over the last couple of times that I've had the privilege of worshiping with you in our study of God's Word, we have observed God's purpose or mission for the church in a survey fashion through the book of Ephesians. We have to understand that every point that God is calling the church toward to fulfill that mission, every point Satan is vehemently fighting against. And so in this week and in next week, we want to take a look, recovering some ground. In that recovering of the ground, we want to see how as the church is, to, is called to a particular task, Satan tries to counterfeit, oppose, contend against that very task. And so this morning, we'll try to cover four elements. If we don't get to all four, we'll just save some for next week. But we're going to try to cover four different elements of the task of the church, the mission of the church that Satan contends with. First of all, the church must walk together in unity. That sounds familiar, right? Because we've talked about that from the book of Ephesians. Let's look, please, starting in chapter 2 of Ephesians, chapter 2 and verse 10, where God says, For we... Is that a singular or a plural? Who is he talking about? The church. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We, the church, should walk in them. Walking how? Together. Later in the context, look down at verse 14. It says, after He tells us how we've been changed in our condition from alienated to within the, the, a relationship with God. It says in verse 14, For He Himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, Soul making peace. How many, how many new men? One. One. Two people, two groups, two different ethnic 
backgrounds, two different uh, religious backgrounds. He's taken them and made them one. This is the workmanship in verse 10. We see it coming to explanation in these texts. Verse, uh, verse number 16 now. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body. How? Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him, Jesus, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access into one spirit, in one spirit, to the Father. Is that two separate entities being spoken of? He's talking about something that he's brought together. The church has been called to walk together in unity. That's one text. Chapter 3 now. Take a look at chapter 3. And verse 6. Speaking about the mystery that was committed to Paul. The mystery that is fully explained through the gospel presentation, but the results of that that gospel ministry is that it brings this unity. Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. Look at chapter 4. He really dives into it in the application section in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, the unity that belongs to the Spirit, the unity that is produced by the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. These texts make it very clear that the church must function in harmony. We must have one mind, one spirit, focused on one Lord, one Savior, one message, the message of the Gospel. Satan's manner is one of opposition and slander. Paul told the Corinthians not to be ignorant of his devices. Peter told his readers that we need to be careful of the the roaring lion who's seeking whom he may devour. Paul, at the end of Ephesians uh, Ephesians in chapter 6, talks about how we wrestle with, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness and wickedness. He goes on and he talks about standing against the wiles of the devil. He talks about taking up the shield of faith with which we'll be able to extinguish every fiery dart of the wicked one. We're told we're under attack. God calls us to walk in unity. God God makes a, a great emphasis of this in Ephesians and in other New Testament texts. So what do you think Satan wants to do? His his name means adversary or opposer. Another name of his, devil, means slanderer. The opposite of unity is fighting, right? But Satan is a subtle deceiver. 
He doesn't need the church to be brawling. He's fine if the church brawls. But he doesn't need a brawl to accomplish his work. He doesn't need the church to be brawling to be happy about his circumstances. He simply wants to keep the church from unity. There is a big, big difference between harmony in spirit and pursuit and not fighting. There have been many bad decisions made in Super Bowl history. I can think of 2018 when the coach of the New England Patriots decided not to play Malcolm Butler. That's a bad decision. I can think of 2017 when the coach of the Atlanta Falcons decided not to run the ball to secure the win that they had earned. Those are not the worst of the worst, unless that happens to be your team. The worst of the worst comes back a few years before when the Seattle Seahawks were at the one-yard line with about a minute left in the game. And they have one of the most vicious running backs that you've ever encountered. They called him, well, his name was Marshawn Lynch, and they, they said he goes into beast mode. And if you've ever watched any of the video on the guy, you would not want to, to be one of the defensive players that, that had him coming at them. Now, that's one of the worst decisions, but let, let's think about this. I don't know if you remember, some of you aren't sports fans, so you certainly won't. I don't know if you remember how good that Seattle Seahawks team was at that point. They were devastating. They had absolutely obliterated the Denver Broncos the year before in the Super Bowl. They, it was a classic beatdown. They lost, the, the Denver Broncos lost 43-8. to and the, and the game wasn't even that close. It was a terror for that team and any of its fans. As, as that game came to an end, the Associated Press wrote this little recap. I just want to share three paragraphs of that, that recap. Waiting to get their hands on the Lombardi Trophy, the Seattle Seahawks were surrounded by security guards in orange jackets. Orange jackets. It was the first time anyone in that color stopped them all night. The, Seattle, uh, the Seahawks stayed true to their mantra to make each day a championship day. They made Super Bowl Sunday the best day of all with one of the greatest performances in an NFL title game, sparked by a defense that ranks among the best ever. The Seahawks won their first Super Bowl crown by punishing Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos 43-8. That masterful defense, the NFL's stingiest Never let the five-time MVP get going, disarming the highest-scoring offense in league history. Well, the next year, the Seattle Seahawks were 12-4 and during the regular season, and they entered into the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots. And I think most people expected a repeat performance of the Seattle Seahawks dominating the Patriots. As the game went along the Patriots entered the fourth quarter down by 10 points, 24 to 14. It basically looked as though the game was finished. But the Patriots built a little bit of momentum that uh, the Seahawks couldn't stop. The Patriots took a four-point lead with two minutes left. And then the Seahawks started to regain some momentum. 
a couple of plays later, you might remember uh, Jerome Curse catching the ball on his back. Oh, it was a bad moment for those of us that care about the Patriots. They were on the verge of winning their second consecutive Super Bowl. But in what turns out to be one of the worst plays in NFL Super Bowl history, they threw the ball when they had Marshawn Lynch, who probably would have run the ball into the end zone, but at least give him the chance, right? What could have been one of the greatest teams of the last couple of decades has since fallen on some seriously hard times. Now, they've been good, but the edge that they once had that made them amazing was taken from them from this. Their head coach, named Pete Carroll, was the head coach of the Patriots from 1997 to 1999, and he was known as like the cheerleader type. I don't know if anyone else knew him by this, but I remember him being called Pete the Poodle. Uh, I don't know if you heard that, but it's because he was well known for this phrase, we're going to get jacked and pumped. We're going to get jacked and pumped. And it didn't work for the Patriots. They, they, they really fizzled out under his leadership. He went over to uh, the college ranks uh, and his rah-rah style worked for them at, at the University of Southern California where they were consistently ranked at the top of college football. And then he made his return to the NFL. Now there's a point to this. This is not just a football story. He made his return to the NFL and the Seahawks gelled under his leadership style. He looked to be a cutting edge coach who was caring for the whole being of his players. I don't know if you remember this, but leading up to the Super Bowl, you start, like, they start chronicling something about the team because they run out of things to talk about in two weeks between the championship games and the Super Bowl. Well, they were chronicling Pete Carroll, and they were talking about how he, he really cared about his players, not just that they were physically well, but that they were emotionally well. And so he had all these things going on. And this was like one cohesive unit. And, and, and all of his players loved him because of how much he cared about their, everything about their lives. This is the whole mantra going up to the game. However, one play changed everything. And if you've watched over the last few years, what has happened is uh, the wheels have come off the car in Seattle. And all of the players that were the dominant defensive players are all gone except for one who's holding out. And they're all saying, that play. That play. We believed. We believed in everything he was dishing out to us. We believed in everything he was, he was chanting for. But that play turned it all around. You could see in the next season, they weren't fighting, but there was tension. There were, there, were, there were times where their best defensive player, at least one of them, Richard Sherman, was, would yell at his head coach on the sideline because he didn't like a play call. It all arose from that one play where the faith in their coach was diminished. But what's the point of all of that? Is it, is it just a, a, a point about football? It's not. One resentment. One bitterness. One unresolved conflict can undermine the unity and approach of a team and a church. 
Satan doesn't need us to be fighting against one another. All he needs is for us to roll our eyes at one another. Or to give each other the side eye. You know, you know, you've, you know what, what it's like to feel that way about some action, some way, some personality, someone demonstrates. It's kind of like, come on. What's, what's wrong with that person? That drives against heart, mission, purpose, unity. It can divide and conquer. The church is called to walk in unity. Satan doesn't need all-out brawls, though he'd be perfectly happy with that. He just needs us to question one another, to doubt one another, to look at each other funny, to think, why are they even part of this anyway? What, what's the matter with them? All, that's all it takes. He doesn't have to create havoc. Just a little bitterness. So what, what do we do about this? Guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring forth the issues of life. Individually, this is true. Collectively, this is true. Secondly, as we move a little further in our consideration of this, the church must know and demonstrate God's love. We've talked about that last week. The church must know and demonstrate God's love. Take a look at chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. Look at a number of texts. We're going to read them successively. So just follow me through Ephesians, seeing this, because this is the call in Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3. God's Word says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the good purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. He's calling us to understand the sovereign work of God in bringing us into union, into family, into intimacy with the God of all glory. God's love abounds in that text. Take a look at chapter 3. We'll remember this from last week as Paul was praying for the church at Ephesus. One of the areas of his prayer was this in verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Chapter 4, please, in verse 2 with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in what? Love. Chapter 4, verse 15 and following. Look what it says in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Look at down at verse 32. Now the word love isn't used, but love is exemplified there. It says in verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 now. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children 
and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. God has called us to know, to understand, to embrace, to demonstrate, to proclaim, to convey His love. Satan is a deceiver. He will try to convince us that God doesn't love us. Isn't that what he did to Eve? Think about the deception in the garden. Oh. Well, you can't eat that one. Really? Of all the trees, that's the only one you really need. He's withholding from you the best one because he doesn't care about you. He just cares about himself. Did it work? Yeah. She followed, she followed his word because he, she was convinced that God didn't love her enough. Not only will he try to let us know that God doesn't love us, there's another way he can do something different with love. He can also try to cause us to presume, presume upon God's love. To take it for granted, to take it flippantly, to take it casually, to take it for granted. You can see the effects of this on the churches addressed in Revelation 2 and 3. Take a look there later today, not right now, but look through Revelation 2 and 3. And aside from two of the churches who remained steadfast and faithful, the other five churches all demonstrate something of a lack of love for God because they grew complacent in it. They weren't, they weren't in awe of a loving father who laid down the life of his son to redeem them. Oh, did they believe it? Yeah, they were very orthodox, particularly the church at Ephesus. But you'll remember that they left their first love. They abandoned it. They, they wandered away from it toward other things. Remember how Jesus summarized the law in Matthew chapter 22? This is what he said after he was approached. He was approached this way. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with how much? All your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Loving God with all of our being and loving our neighbor as ourselves to the extent we love ourselves. That's pretty intense. He also taught this about a mixed love in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money is just an example. You could throw in anything else in, that, in the place of money there. That's just the, the example Jesus used. We can't serve our job and God. That doesn't mean we don't serve at our job. What we understand is we serve God at our job. We can't serve God and our wives. That doesn't mean we don't serve our wives. It means we serve God in serving our wives. We can't serve God and our children. That doesn't mean we don't serve our children. 
means we serve God while serving our children. Who's at the top of the list? He is. We're loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's the one. And so everything comes underneath it. Satan doesn't need to remove our love for God entirely. He just needs to overshadow it with other things. Well, what are these things? It can be hobbies. It can be people. It can be things. Cars. It can be bikes. It can be the beach. It can be the mountains. It can be anything. It can be sports. Our family. Just name it. Anything that's good can be distorted into evil. Anything that usurps the place that God deserves alone can be used for evil, even if that very thing is good. Many pastors have done this over the years. They've so invested in the church, the church, that their family suffered. We don't serve primarily the church. We serve God as we serve the church. When we yield ourselves to some form of building our name and reputation through an organism or organization, we are going to find ourselves overshadowing who we're really supposed to be promoting. Jeremiah has something to say about this in Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah is speaking to the people of God about their unfaithfulness and he uses some very descriptive terms. Let's take a look, beginning in verses 1-4. through The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness and in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of His harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Look down at verse 8. Verse 8. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Look down at verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, which can hold no water. I'm so thirsty. Well, I know I'll be thirsty again tomorrow. Let's make sure we have something. Let's, let's make a cistern. Let's make a, make a well. But if there's a crack in the bottom of the well, how's that going to work out? This is what happens when we seek other things for satisfaction that have no ability to provide lasting satisfaction. This is what Jeremiah is pictorially 
telling us. He's telling the people of Israel as well. Uh, Verse 23. How can you say, I am not unclean? Whoa, whoa, whoa. hang on a second. Let's, let's, Let's think about this. Who's saying that? Well, the people of Israel had to have said that. Hey, we're fine. We're fine. I'm doing great. I go on, on Sabbath. I, I, I make sure that I don't do X, Y, and Z. You know, when it's time to worship, I bring my sacrifice. I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. How can you say I am not unclean? I have not gone after the bales. I've seen you. I know what's going on. Who are you, who are you fooling? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there. God's letting them know, I I see what's happening here. Verse 27. Who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. In other words, they're following idols. They're they're recognizing this, this thing is where I get my satisfaction. This thing is where I get my meaning. This thing is where I get my purpose. For uh, they have turned their back to me and not their face. That is, wow, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Okay, well, none of us have little stone statues that we're bowing down to, right? Well, not on purpose. We're not thinking of it that way. But remember the first and great commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Remember that one? Whenever we choose something else to love, whenever something usurps the love of God, it's, it's like a little idol. It's like taking a stone and saying, hey, you're my dad. It's taking a, a tree. Hey, I came forth from you. It's the same thing. God is taking this concept and he's widening it out for us. You and I daily struggle with idolatry. I think it's Paul Tripp that says that our hearts are idol-making factories. Or maybe it was John Calvin. I don't remember. Someone said it. Um, and it's true. Our hearts are idol-making factories. And, and it doesn't... It, the, the, the thing itself, whatever this idol is, it doesn't have to be intrinsically sinful in and of itself. It's just that I have to place it in, a, in the wrong place. I have to seek my satisfaction and enjoyment from it instead of God. And it steals away joy. This is what Satan tries to do. God tells us about His love. God tells us about the love that has been demonstrated to us. God gives us that love. He sheds it abroad in our hearts so we can demonstrate it to other people. And yet, other things get in the way. Satan just has to shift our focus off to the left. Just a slightly bit. Just a slight bit. And our love isn't genuine anymore. See, love, the love that God calls for in the Bible, you and I cannot do it. We take this for granted. We, we, we think, all right, well, you know, I've had lots of lessons on agape love and phileo love. I, I know all about it. I, I, I've read all the texts, all the passages. I've studied them. I know what it looks like. I know how it acts. I can go to James chapter 2. I can go to 1 John chapter 2. I can go to 1 John chapter 4. I know what it all looks like. So I'm going to go and do that. that. Just because you know what love is doesn't mean you can do it. The very first evidence of the Spirit is love. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And yet, because we're, we want to teach things, and we should, 
we, we tell people how this all fleshes out. How does, it, how does it work in your married life? How does it work with your kids? How does it work in the workplace? How does it work at church? How does it work in the community? How does all, how does all this work out? We, we become and we flesh it out. And I mean that as a pun. And it steals away the supernatural. Every demonstration of God's Spirit in my life, every one of them, is, by definition, a miracle. It's supernatural. I can't control it. I can't use the fruits of the Spirit. The the Spirit uses me. He displays His work through me. He displays His work through you. If Satan can just get us to try really hard to love one another in our flesh, we're going to feel good about ourselves. And it might even look pretty good. But if it is not spirit-wrought love, it's just a facsimile. It's just, it's just like the scribes putting on a whited sepulcher. It's good stuff. Who's going to complain about people being nice? We shouldn't complain about people being nice, right? But what we need is the Spirit. And this is what Satan tries to do. He tries to get us to do what the Bible calls for without the aid of God's grace that brings it forth in its fullness. Let's head back to the book of Ephesians, please. The church must testify of God's greatness. We see this in chapter 1 of Ephesians. We're just going to summarize this briefly. The church must testify of God's greatness. The whole first section, I use this term regularly. I don't know if you catch it when I say it. But, but in verse 3, the word blessed is the word ulageo. You hear eulogy in there? It's to speak well. Well, we do eulogies at someone's funeral or someone's memorial service. Well, here, Paul is writing a eulogy for a living God. And he talks about how, how blessed, what, what kind of a, a great God he is. That's the whole concept of this first paragraph in the book of Ephesians, or the first main paragraph after the introduction. And in verse 6, it's, it has this refrain, "...to the praise of His glorious grace..." with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Who's who's being praised? God the Father. Look at verse 12. So that we who who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. Again, it's God the Father. He's the subject of this very long sentence. Verse 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. God the Father is the recipient of all this praise even though the first first section of it is about God's sovereign purposes. The second part of it, 7 to 12, is about Jesus' saving work. And the, the third part of it, verses 13 to 14, about the, the Spirit's sealing work. The, the idea, however, is praising God, glorifying God, bringing, bringing praise to Him. So that is the job of the church. What is the goal of worship? Is it making God big? I'm going to make God big today. Any, any thoughts on that statement? Too late. Too late. You're you're in eternity too late for that. Do we want to magnify him? All right. He's great, and we want people to be able to see that. Okay, now we're clarifying. We're taking our um, 2200 vision, we're putting some spectacles on that baby, and now we're down to 2015. Now I can see. Oh, look at how great God is. 
That's the goal of worship, is to, to recognize his worth and his glory. Do you know what kind of style of music there'll be in heaven? Oh, you have your opinion, don't you? Have you been there? <laughs> if you have, can you come and see me after? <laughs> you don't know what that looks like, and yet churches fight over styles of worship and um, liturgical styles, uh, the liturgy, uh, following the liturgical calendar, and all these kinds of things. Do emotions have a place in worship? Does emotion have a place? In order to worship God as a whole person, our emotions must be engaged, right? Can our worship be primarily emotional? Should our worship be primarily emotional? Well, if we're not engaging our intellect, then, then we, we're not worshiping as a whole person. What about our will? Should our will be engaged in worship? Does our will have a decision to make in worship? Well, Romans chapter 12 tells us it does. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual what? Is it not up there? Sorry, I meant to put it in there. It's your spiritual worship. It's your spiritual worship. The word is litruo. It can mean service or worship, but it's really a, a worship through service. Take the both, both of those concepts and it, and it fleshes itself out. But what takes place before I really spiritually worship God? I've presented my body. It's an act of our will. Satan can use these types of elements, uh, whether we're overly emotional, underly emotional, overly intellectual, under-intellectual, overly dealing with the will, not dealing with the will at all. He takes it and mixes it all up so that we're thinking about styles and forms and ways instead of the object of our worship. Isn't worship supposed to be just about God? About His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Spirit whom God has given to us? When we come together, we're here to worship the triune God. We worship God the Father. We worship God the Son. And we worship God the Spirit. We worship God the, the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ, His Son, empowered by the Spirit. But we're worshiping all three members of the triune Godhead. This is what we're supposed to do. And yet Satan just has to get us to, to quibble. Well, I don't like the way it sounds. I don't like this. I like it when the organ's there. I don't like with the organ. I like guitars. I don't like guitars. I like pianos. I don't like pianos. What? Listen. Just worship God. Someday, we're going to see Him face to face. It's going to be glorious. No questions about styles. No questions about forms. No questions about anything. It's Full, unending, glorious worship. In the meantime, let's just worship Him. Let's worship Him together. The church must remain true to the Gospel. That's our last. We're not going to try to unveil too much here with this. In chapter 3, he gives us some good clarity. Satan tries to fight against the Gospel. Satan tries to fight against the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan just wants to tarnish the gospel. Maybe in our own lives and maybe as a church, there are times that other elements of church life overshadow the gospel. If that's the case, that's a victory in Satan's eyes. As soon as I turn my gaze toward me or my gaze toward you as, as the primary focus, I'm, I'm, I'm in the wrong direction. We look toward one another, right? We care about one another. Recognizing God's image, recognizing our mutual need for the gospel, both unto salvation and through salvation. But Satan would have us distort the way we view ourselves and one another. Whether there's a plan to build a brand for a particular church or an emphasis on a particular type of movement within Christianity, the fundamentalist movement or other movement, some political endeavor, some social good without being primarily gospel-oriented, if our efforts are not grounded in the embracing, demonstrating, and proclamation of the sufficiency of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Satan will sense he's winning a victory over us. I know that was a long sentence. But if something other, anything other than the sufficiency of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the means of our eternal redemption overshadows. Satan will sense, it's an important word, that he has won the victory. The evil one opposes the work of God. He has vast resources at his disposal. According to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You know, we started off this morning during our time in the Word, quoting John F. Kennedy, the only thing that's necessary for the, um, for the pr- uh, prevailing of evil is that good men do nothing. Well, I want to just tell you something. It's, it's really nice, and I agree with the sentiment to, to an extent, but it's not true. Jesus Christ has already struck the decisive blow The victory has already been won. Evil will not prevail. Evil hasn't given up. Satan is tireless and he is unscrupulous in his efforts. He uses demonic forces. He uses fleshly forces. He is on the attack regarding the gospel. He doesn't mind churchianity. If you feel better about yourself after you leave church, he's not upset. If you, your life feels more complete having added church to your life, he's fine with that. Churchianity doesn't scare him in the least. These feelings are a poor substitute for redemption. Redemption is when you and I receive full pardon from our sin. Redemption is when you and I receive a perfect standing with God through Jesus Christ. Redemption changes our very being. We become a new creation in Christ. 
We are not redeemed by going to church. We are not redeemed by singing songs. We are not redeemed by giving money in the offering. We are redeemed when we see our desperate need because of our clear sinfulness. We turn from our sinfulness. We turn from our sin and realizing it's insufficient, it doesn't satisfy, and it can't save. And we turn to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, because we recognize He can save us, He can redeem me, and He will satisfy me. He has the ability to do this. The salvation He offers is the result of His perfect sinless life and His sacrificial, substitutionary giving of His life on the cross. Satan wants to rob you of this. He wants to shroud the Gospel. God has offered Himself to us. Have you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? The church, when we get together, is about unity, It's about love. It's about worshiping God. And it's about proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel. Satan is fighting tooth and nail to distort just slightly these things. Be of good cheer, church. Be of good cheer. While he may win little battles along the way, he has lost the war already. God will not ever lose one time. He will never, ever lose. He is the sovereign one. He is almighty. We celebrate him. We're going to sing about him right now together. Let's pray. Father, help us as we sing that we would recognize the victory that is ours through Christ. I pray for anyone here that's never come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that even this morning you would open their eyes to see the truth of the Gospel and their need They would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. I pray, Father, for each believer in this room. Dear Lord, please help us. Help us not to be shifting in our mindset, but to see Your plan and purpose and to follow wholly after it. For Your glory's sake, in Jesus' name, Amen.